The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, he was one of the most influential African-American writers of the 20th century, famous for his portraits of Black American life in poems and stories. Born in Joplin, Missouri in 1902, he made his way to New York, where he wrote about the period when, quote, the Negro was in vogue, end quote, which later became known as when Harlem was in vogue. It's the period we call the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s and 30s, and Langston Hughes was one of its leaders. Today, we might read The Negro Speaks of Rivers, a poem written when Hughes was 17, crossing the Mississippi, or I, Too, his response to Walt Whitman, written when he was 22, first published when he was 24. And we might be forgiven for freezing Hughes in this time period, young, in his 20s, arrived from Missouri and finding himself in Harlem. And to stop there. This is all the Langston Hughes we need, right? It's the Hughes that has been preserved in anthologies and textbooks like a butterfly pinned to a page. But look again at those two poems. The Negro Speaks of Rivers was part of the crossing of a river while he was on his way to Mexico to visit his father. And I, too, was written while Hughes was in Italy trying to get back on his ship to America, repeatedly passed over as white passengers were taken aboard. Langston Hughes is more than just a teenaged and 20-something poet, and he's more than just an avatar of Harlem. He lived into his 60s, and he traveled around the world to the Soviet Union, to the Caribbean, to Europe, and to Africa. He was an American writer and has been celebrated as such, but his interests and his influence have been global. The point is emphasized in a new anthology of essays about Hughes, Langston Hughes in Context, published by Cambridge University Press. We'll talk to the editors, Vera Kuczynski and Anthony Reed, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, your humble and welcoming host, the host of the show. How are we doing as a show? Some of you might recall that I started this thing with a couple of goals, one of which was to reach a million downloads, which I thought would be impressive enough to make the effort worth it. And after a year or two, it looked like I could actually make that if I kept podcasting for another 50 years. <laughs> then things started to pick up, started to snowball, and I passed that first million and then a second million, and now things are clipping along. So I wondered if maybe I should up my goals. Why not a billion? Well, that looks like it might be a little ambitious. I'm something like 900 years away. <laughs> at the current pace, 990 years away, unless we see another surge. I don't think I'll hang on that long, although I have thought about passing along the name Jack Wilson, like the Dread Pirate Roberts, one of my, one of my, uh, you know that from the Princess Bride, right? There's more than one Dread Pirate Roberts. It's a concept, one of my favorite authors. Taught me early on, Franklin W. Dixon of Hardy Boys fame. When I was a kid, I was crushed to learn that he was not a real person. Even then, I knew there was something suspicious about Franklin W. Dixon, about novels being written by a team of people, cranking them out like widgets. So, I guess in in that sense, if I pass along the the Jack Wilson name to the next podcaster, a billion might still be within our scope. And a hundred million, I guess, is, since we're about to pass 10 million downloads. Hooray for us. And my thanks to all of you. I could not have done this without each and every one of you. Literally. Okay. Oh, oh, speaking of which, we're giving something back. Hopefully. You can send us your suggestion for a dream guest. Who would you love for me to have on the show? What guests do you most want to hear in a History of Literature podcast interview? We're going to try to deliver at least one of these for the holidays. These are some tough people to land. 
as I've been encouraging you to dream big. Who are the good talkers, the readers, the lovers of literature, the people we haven't had yet? Or maybe we have had them and you would just like to hear more. This is your dream, so feel free to dream big and roam free. Send the suggestion to historyofliteraturepodcast at gmail.com or visit historyofliterature.com and look for the Contact Us link. So, Vera Kutsinski and Anthony Reed today. This takes us into the world of Langston Hughes. And what I like here is something I previewed at the opening. It's a bigger world than the one we often get. Hughes is so identified with the Harlem Renaissance, and that's certainly important in literary history. We've talked about it a few times here. You can find those episodes in our archives. But there's a whole other side to Langston Hughes. Maybe maybe side isn't the right word. There's a, an additional aspect of Hughes that was that we sometimes overlook. He was a traveler, a seeker, restless, you might say, and he was wide-ranging. And as a poet, he had an impact beyond just a few square blocks in Upper Manhattan, plus the American classrooms afterwards. Let me give you the chapter titles of this book, this uh, new book, Langston Hughes in Context, so you can get a sense of his range. The first part of the book is Singing America, Different Voices and Genres. And here we have chapters on Hughes and Chicago and modernism, jazz and performance, Hughes and his ways with white folks. That one talks about literary patronage. Love at a Distance, as expressed in Hughes's letters, his short fiction of the 1930s, Hughes and Ebony Magazine, Hughes and the Blues, and Rural Black Masculinity, and so on. And then in part two, Hughes and Travel and Translation, we see Hughes and the Haitian Revolution, Hughes, Gender and Transnational Friendship, Hughes in Mexico, Hughes in Spain, Hughes in Cuba and South America. Hughes, Colonialism and Decolonization, Hughes and Cultural Diplomacy, Hughes in the Soviet Union, Hughes in Italy, Hughes and the Shanghai Jazz Scene, Hughes's short fiction in 1930s Korea. And the later Hughes, we see Hughes in anthologies from 1923 to 2020, and there we see Hughes in the Black Arts Movement, Hughes in German translation, Hughes in Arabic, Hughes and the Black Pacific, Hughes as queer Harlem Renaissance author. And that, dear listeners, is the first time in this table of contents that we hear or see the words Harlem or Renaissance. And this is in chapter 28 out of 29. So this gives you a different angle on Hughes. I think that is important and compelling. Final chapter is Hughes and Black Lives Matter. That's range for a book. That's context. And that's Langston Hughes in context. It's the name of the book. The editors, Vera Kuczynski and Anthony Reed, will tell us how they put this together and what it means to them after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus 
in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now are Vera Kuczynski and Anthony Reed, professors at Vanderbilt University, here today to discuss their book, Langston Hughes in Context. Vera and Anthony, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. Hi, thank you for having us. So I'm curious when the two of you started reading Langston Hughes. Do you remember your earliest impressions of him? Yep. Uh, I can be fairly precise. Uh, I uh, first sort of fell in love with Hughes in uh, around 1980 Mm. Mm -hmm. as a grad student at Yale. And uh, I actually wrote a paper on, or I tried to write a paper on him and his translations of Nicolas Guillen. Mm. The problem I ran into, uh, and that's why I didn't pursue this at the time, was that the Langston Hughes papers, which are housed, most of them are housed at uh, Yale's Beinecke Library, were closed because uh, Arnold Rampersad was uh, working on his uh, biography of Hughes. Mm, mm-hmm. So I, I basically had nowhere to go with my interest in, uh, you know, in Hughes and translation. So I pretty much abandoned it uh, at the time. And I didn't come back to it until, gosh, until the papers opened again sometime in the mid to late 90s. Mm. And you said you fell in love with Hughes. What was it about his writing that you admired so much? Uh, it's a difficult question, uh, and uh, it would be to say everything uh, would not be a sufficient answer. Mm. Writing very much spoke to me, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, not out of context, but also in the context of uh, uh, Hughes being very much a traveler mm-hmm. and somebody who was interested in and uh, conversant in several languages. And, you know, just the fact that... Uh, uh, he reached out to other writers as well uh, across the language, uh, possible language barriers. And I also, I appreciated the fact that he is very concise. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. With people have sometimes, I think, misread as being simplistic. Mm, mm-hmm. That he was doing more with less. He was doing more with less. He is very good at doing more with less. Right. Anthony, how about you? Can you recall your first reading of Langston Hughes? I was probably in elementary school. Mm -hmm. Um, Being a black boy in the Detroit area, um, many people took an interest just in my education that I should know something about the traditions of African-American literature and culture. And poems like The Negro Speaks of Rivers, which maybe everyone reads first, or at least I read it first, um, are part of that education. And it wasn't until probably college, though, that I started to really pay attention to not just those poems, you know, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, Mother to Son, which I'm sure was I probably had to recite in some kind of Mother's Day pageant or something similar. I learned to understand and to care about the blues poetry after Mm. that. And that was because a lot of the curriculum in my classes was very Euro-American focused. And often, I mean, this is still the case at many places. If you take a class on modern or modernist poetry, there'll be one week maybe two in the Harlem Renaissance, and that'll be about it. And so I often took it upon myself to maintain my own shadow syllabus, to read um, the authors that I I was familiar with in the context of the authors that were on the syllabus and round out my education that way. Mm, Right. And Hughes is one example. Were there other authors that you found you could read kind of with and against the writers who had been on the syllabus? Um, there are um, any any number of writers. Hughes, Conte Cullen, Richard Wright was somebody who was important mm. to me for a while. Um, W.B. Du Bois, beyond the opening chapter of The Souls of Black Folk. Mm-hmm. And then later I started to read in the, the Caribbean canon the historians and the poets as well, including Guillen, M.A. Césaire, and others. Right. Well, one of the reasons why I'm so 
excited to talk to the two of you today, and I'm so glad we have this book, Langston Hughes, in context, is because I think a lot of people do have a, an experience similar to yours, Anthony, where they are introduced to Langston Hughes in kind of an anthology form and and maybe as just one poem as part of a curriculum or something. And, and he's so identified with the Harlem Renaissance that we really lose kind of that sense of him as a as a broader figure, a more global figure, and that he's got a lot of writings that, you know, beyond just the three or four that seem to always wind up in the introduction to literature courses. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. And since you mentioned that most people probably come across him in an anthology, I did come across him before 1980 when I was going to university in Germany Mm. uh, and appeared in one of the poetry courses I took there was certainly nothing, and I think, Anthony, you're lucky that you encountered him uh, earlier. There was certainly nothing, elementary school, high school, nothing in Germany. Mm-hmm. And, Anthony, you, you mentioned people who had sort of taken in, an interest in making sure they were putting Langston Hughes and others in front of you. Are you, you talking about people in, in schools and librarians or people in the neighborhood, or who was it who was encouraging you to make sure you understood who Langston Hughes was? Um, that's a great question. It was at one teacher in fourth grade, mm-hmm. and the librarian was, my high school librarian was Black, and she would make sure to talk to to the Black students who seemed like they would be interested. I had an older brother who would steer me towards um, people, but I th- and you know elders in the community and in my in my family, my like extended family. So that his was his was one of those names like Nikki Giovanni, like Maya Angelou, that just circulated. And so hearing this name enough, or I mean beyond that, like Miles Davis or John Coltrane, I would hear these names enough and understand that this was this was my education. This is what. I was responsible for knowing and making sure the young people after me would also know. And um, especially as I, as I matured and became a scholar to want to read beyond the anthology, beyond just um, I can name drop the famous, famous poets, you know, um, what is the line that, that Zero Neale Hurston wanted as a uh, cemetery for the illustrious Negro dead. That's mm. important. And when we get beyond that, to live with these figures as in in other ways that just became important to me right so langston hughes is so often identified with the harlem renaissance i'm guessing that out of 10 books that would be similar to the ones you guys have put together here nine of them would probably focus almost exclusively on the harlem renaissance but this one takes a global perspective so what was the was that the idea of the two of you, or did that come to you from an editor, or what was the genesis for this global uh, focus? Gosh, uh, the genesis really came more from us. Mm-hmm. The way this thing started was that an editor at uh, Cambridge uh, decided that uh, it would be time for them to do a uh, uh, a book on Langston Hughes in the In Context series. And uh, I started talking to Anthony because I like to collaborate on these things. The idea of Hughes in a global context uh, really is something that we started to piece together as we started thinking about what kind of shape this book should have. Mm. Most people think about Hughes as simply in the context of the Harlem Renaissance and everything else falls away. So we were trying to do this differently. Right. So let's talk a little bit about his travel to other countries. Where did he go? What places was he going to see? Oh, gosh. Uh, Where to start? Uh, I mean, when he was a child, he started spending time in Mexico because his father had moved there. So Mm -hmm. he went to see his father multiple times. Some of the earliest places that he went to uh, were in the Caribbean, as well as West Africa and Europe. He wasn't really all that much known as a poet. He was, what, 18? And he hired on on a freighter and traveled, uh, well, not quite the world, but a good part of it, at least. Mm -hmm. Hughes is a traveler. Uh, You know, the whole question of 
where was the poet's home, I think is a very difficult one to uh, answer because he always seemed to be on the move somewhere. Mm -hmm. One of the things that uh, people may know about is uh, that he spent about a year or thereabouts in uh, the former Soviet Union and traveled across Central Asia. He went to uh, China. He went to Japan. He went to Africa again later on for uh, longer than he had. So he's somebody who didn't seem to enjoy staying in the same place for a long time. Mm -hmm. And Anthony, what did you find compelling about putting Langston Hughes into this global context? Um, I mean, I think this what Vera said is true, that it, it captures something about him, how his work circulated, what are the communities that um, he connected with, but also what were the contexts for his writing. So the, the tendencies are the people who, people will either put Hughes in the context of the, of the Harlem Renaissance and kind of fix him there. But he, of course, lives at least three decades after the end of the Harlem Renaissance, depending on how you date the, that movement. Or people will read him in terms of the blues and kind of African-American vernacular traditions and effectively, one, take him out of particular locations but, and also read him in a sort of nar a narrower way than I think is fully justified by his work. So the idea that we could think about how he's moving through history, how he's navigating historical changes, and how that his thinking shifts, his thinking about the blues shifts, his thinking about politics shifts, and the kind of possibilities of translation and of transnational comradeship, for one of a, a better term, for one of a, a less loaded term. That just is a really exciting aspect of his work that I think has heretofore primarily been the stuff of specialists, people mm -hmm. who people who work on the popular front, say the thirties, loosely affiliated with the Communist International, they'll know that canon very well, but they might not know about his travels after that. They might not know where does he go after the popular front is dissolved. And so to try to think across his whole career and to commission writers who could represent that, collect that in one volume, I think this does a service to people who want to know more about him. Okay, let's take a quick break and then talk more about Langston Hughes in context. Okay, we're back. So you talk about getting a better sense of how his thinking changes over time and kind of not keeping him pinned to those early works that are so famous and the Harlem Renaissance period and so on. And I'm wondering if he, when he was traveling, he was obviously, he was famous at that point, the travel that we're talking about now, where he went to France and Italy and the Soviet Union and so on. Was he coming in as a, a celebrity? Was, was he giving lectures and poetry readings? Was he the guest of the government or the arts organizations or anything like that? Or was he funding this himself and traveling in relative anonymity? If you want to establish a timeline, uh, Anthony was just talking about, okay, the Harlem Renaissance. Typically, people think of the Harlem Renaissance being over by about 1930 with uh, the stock market crash in 29. So Hughes, let's think about how old Hughes was at that point. He wasn't that old. He was born in 1902. And then we're going into the 30s. Anthony was uh, mentioning popular front contexts. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that happened in terms of his travel and in terms of his writing in the 1930s, whereas in the 20s, he had really only published two books of poetry. Mm. Uh, so he was just getting going uh, in a lot of ways. But he was also based on those two books of poems and some of his early travels, especially in the Caribbean, also in France. He was well known already. Mm -hmm. When he went to the Soviet Union, he was invited to go to the Soviet Union to collaborate on a film that never made it. 
when he went to Spain in 37, he was very well known. But, you know, he didn't primarily go to give poetry reading. Mm. In Spain, was reporting on the Spanish Civil War for the Baltimore Afro-American. And he went to conferences. He went to conferences in France, conferences in Spain as well. But he was not sponsored by the U.S. government at that time. That came much, much later. We're talking about 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. His work had circulated massively basically since the late 20s and very much in the early 30s. When he came to Spain, people were aware of the fact from having who he was or who he thought he was from having read that poem that had been translated and that had been circulated in Spanish. Right. I guess what I was planning to get at is, was he doing this traveling and, and appearing places where they were eager to meet him and, and see him, if that locked him into his his greatest hits, so to speak, you know, like the band, the, the band that the Rolling Stones or something playing, I can't get no satisfaction until the end of time or something like that. Or if they viewed him as a vibrant, active writer instead of a legend, you know, or an anthologized writer, if they if they were eager to hear what he had to say about current situations or eager to read his latest work, or if it was if he struggled against the view of him as the writer that he had been in his 20s. Every context in which he moved, people were trying to basically get a piece of him and lionize mm -hmm. him in various mm -hmm. ways. There were expectations, there were encounters with uh, new people, new forms of writing, but there were also constraints, mostly ideological constraints. For some, he was in the 30s, especially, Hughes, the communist. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is particularly important for the folks in the Soviet Union. In uh, Spain, he was an offshoot of Hughes, the anti-fascist. And the point of tension was in both of those and in other contexts uh, was that well, was he a black communist? Was he a black anti-fascist? What happened to blackness in all of that? Mm. And this point of tension continued on for some time. And that his thinking about himself as a black poet, as Anthony said, changed in these contexts as he was trying to negotiate all these different expectations that people had of him. Right. Anthony, do you get the sense that Hughes felt a kind of felt this celebrity or, or fame that he had as a burden, or did he feel that it came with obligations and responsibilities, or uh, does he give us a sense of that when you look at him in a biographical context, what he thought he meant to the world? My own impression is that while he had some questions about the best ways to connect with audiences, and he had some different ways of wanting to be both Black and left, a lot of the conflict is circumstantial rather than existential. It depends on who, what's the occasion that he's writing for, Mm. Who? What are the expectations of those audiences? Because the other thing to know about Langston Hughes is he's among the first poets, first African-American poets, to make a living almost exclusively through his poetry. Mm. And so, and his playwriting and his, his, this is own artistic endeavors. And so he was in that way much more beholden to what audience expectations than some other poets might have been. And but in that way, I mean, part of his genius is he was flexible enough to adapt his vision to different contexts, while, from my perspective, remaining true to a kind of core links and hues. Mm -hmm. And when he was in these other countries, did they view him as uh, an intellectual comrade, so to speak? I don't mean to tie this too much into the Cold War, but but did they? Did they view him as a voice of the oppressed and the underdog, or were they viewing him as, uh, were they aware of the historical circumstances from which he was writing and view him as a representative of the Black experience in America and, and that kind of thing? Or did they kind of translate him, so to speak, into somebody who could speak for them if if they were in a country and facing similar but not identical issues? 
I think based on some of the writing in in the anthology, a little bit of both, Mm -hmm. that people wanted him to represent the struggle of the working class black people, the low-down folk, as he called them. And as time has gone on, people have adapted Hughes to their own local struggles and understood in him a comrade, a fellow traveler. I realize this is all loaded Cold War language. And if we can imagine using those terms uncoupled from their origin, mm-hmm. um, one of the people in our anthology writes about how Arab-American youth have turned to Lynx and Hughes in order to think about their own experiences, at once valuing him for who he is and also seeing how uh, drawing parallels between what he was writing about and their own concerns and struggles. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that would be a, a development that Hughes would have appreciated that his work was being used in that way. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about putting this book together. You talked about commissioning the writers. What was were they uh, sending you ideas for essays or pitching you, or were you soliciting them from people and thinking, "Here's a here's a chapter we really could use, and here's the person who would be a great person to write it"? Or how did you come up with the ideas for the different essays that are included? We solicited them with an initial email. We basically based this on people who we knew had done similar work before. We had a pretty good idea as to what it is that we wanted to cover and what we did not want the book to be, to come back around to what we already talked about, is something that dealt primarily with the Harlem Renaissance. Right. Some essays do because uh, it's not something that you want to disregard. But that's not where the main focus lies. Right. So you you ended up with the three parts. The first one is Singing America, Different Voices and Genres. So what types of essays fall into that category? Initially, that section was supposed to be the Harlem Renaissance section, but ended up not being a really a Harlem Renaissance heavy at all. Mm-hmm. Much more varied. Mm. I was just going to say, it's. I don't think it's coincidental that that's probably the most U.S.-centered mm-hmm. part mm. of the book, and that is also about his his earliest career, um, with right. the exception of well, no, with all of the all of those chapters primarily focus on an early part of Hughes's career, and this is another feature of the book, not just as poet, which. Of course, I've referred to him repeatedly in this conversation as poet. He's also an essayist and a playwright and a librettist. Um, he writes many genres, which was important to us. So the the Hughes in America gave us, that section gave us an opportunity to think about his early career and to think about how he was using, writing across these different forms to relate to different aspects of of life in the United States um, in his in his earliest career. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's tempting to kind of draw a, a a parallel between his different genres and his you know wearing different hats as an artist and his almost seemingly restless travel. I don't know if that puts kind of a I guess you could you could put a negative spin on that and say that he he wasn't comfortable, he wasn't, you know, he was fleeing from something, he was always unhappy with with what he was working in or where he was, but you could also view it as excitement of creativity and the the seeking of of new ideas and new challenges and doing that both in geographical place as well as his artisticness. Is either one of those closer to being correct or is it difficult to know? I, my sense would be, I don't know about you, Anthony, that uh, this was not a restlessness that came from him just being unhappy pretty Mm. much wherever it was. I think uh, uh, the latter part of what you were saying, Jack, is uh, is more to the point because uh, uh, it's uh, he wanted he wanted exposure to different contexts, to different ideas, to different people as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was uh, uh, meeting other artists as he read their work, as he uh, often translated their work, and he translated poetry and plays. For instance, uh, 
he himself felt the uh, the need, the desire to uh, write in different genres. You can see that even if you just look at the poetry, you can see that the poems, the long poems, he would write in the 50s, things like uh, Montage of a Dream Deferred and Ask Your Mama. Those look very different from the earlier poems. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are obviously, but uh, you can see that Things are things from other genres are being pulled in, and things from other contexts. That the contexts are much, much more international, and so are the genres. So you're not you're not wrong that there is there is a connection here between moving across genres and moving across the world. Mm-hmm. He was seeking stimulus and something to sort of grist for his creative mill, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we haven't talked much about translation. Uh, Anthony, how was he translated within his lifetime? What what was his experience? Was he involved in the translations, or was he he widely read in a lot of different languages? Or what kinds of essays do we see in the translation section? There, it's really varied. He, as Vera has underscored, he himself was an active translator, especially for poets um, like. Federico Garcia Lorca, um, Nicolas Guillén, and also Francophone poets like Jacques Romain and others. And that the work of those, some people in those same contexts also translated him. And it was part of how people elsewhere, everybody seems to have had their own Langston Hughes mm-hmm. and their own version of him that they wanted to champion and argue for implicitly or explicitly. And that really comes across in um, in that section where one of the essays talks about him in the context of writing on the Haitian Revolution or his a kind of literary encounter with a famous Jamaican poet named Louise Bennett Coverley, popularly known as Miss Lou. Some of the translations he assisted on and some of them people just did on their own for their own purposes, it reveals to readers something about the stakes, the claims that people wanted to make on him and on his work and how his work travels, but also what gets left out in that circulation. Right. Uh, what gets left out is uh, certainly as interesting as uh, what uh, uh, what gets put in. Anthony is certainly right the way in which he is talking about Hughes in translation and as a translator, I think one of the things I want to add into this is that there's a recent book that just came out to uh, that should be mentioned here, uh, that is Ryan Kernan's New World Maker. And uh, anybody who's interested in uh, translations of Hughes, not just in uh, Latin America, and Hughes also as a translator, and this is something I've written about him in Latin America, but this book goes beyond and uh, has some very interesting things to say about France and about the Soviet Union especially, because he did translate, with the help of others, poems from the Russian as well. And it's just, if you want to get a sense of just how much he was involved as a translator, he translated a whole lot more than people are, and from different languages than people are typically aware and um, the third section, Afterlives, Home and Abroad, are these parts basically kind of an early, middle, and later period? Is there any chronology to it? I think that the the first two sections cover broadly the sweep of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the last section ended up being for us a question of how Hughes has been taken up. Mm, and what mm-hmm. are the versions of Hughes that contemporary readers would encounter? So one of the one of the essays there looks at the work of anthologies, the way mm. that Hughes self-anthologized and produced anthologies, but then which of his poems are the most commonly anthologized, bringing us back to a conversation we had earlier about mm-hmm. how do you encounter Langston Hughes. There's a lot of controversy, especially among active poets around the Black Arts Movement, which aligned itself with Black power politics in the 1960s. And so that question of how exactly do, who are the literary ancestors who can be claimed? And people want to claim Langston Hughes. And 
it's inconvenient, therefore, that he actually supported more or less the writers of the Harlem Renaissance. I mean, as with anything, it's not frictionless, but he he encouraged them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we wanted to just think about how does his work circulate now after uh, posthumously, and what are the contexts in which he's figuratively and literally translated now that he didn't get to live to see, but that tell contemporary readers something about the Langston Hughes that we inherit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And are you finding that he has a large readership abroad in contemporary terms? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, it's uh, uh, If you look at some of the essays from that section, for instance, the translations of the Jesse B. Simple stories, the story cycle in Germany, mm-hmm. I was actually surprised how many translations and now more retranslations of those stories exist uh, in that context. And uh, uh, something similar is also true, uh, though located mostly uh, online, really, when it comes to uh, Arab America uh, and, uh, you know, and Egypt, for instance, or in the context of the Black Pacific. Yeah, the readership is uh, the readership is very much there. Mm. Last question, and I'm, I'm going to caveat this on your behalf. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't have time to go through all 29 essays, but I was wondering if you could each choose one that, that you think helped give a, a flavor of the book or one that, that surprised you when it came in or that you have a particular hope that readers are going to discover and enjoy. So, Vera, why don't we start with you? Well, as you said, it's difficult uh, to uh, pick a favorite but I think I want to pick as my favorite uh, Keith Green's essay on translingual poetics and pedagogy, uh, which surprised me uh, mm. probably most. What's interesting to me about it is uh, that it speaks to my interest in the combination of multiple languages, but also to bring Hughes in connection with pedagogy was something I'd never even thought about. And pedagogy, because when he was, as a young man, spending time in uh, in Mexico, he was teaching English mm. at the time. Uh, in other words, you know, pedagogy is something that is uh, that was important to him, and that made it into some of his poems, mm. mm-hmm. and probably affected his his outlook and in his approach. Yeah, absolutely. That was surprising to me, and I very much appreciated that. Mm. Okay. Anthony, how about you? Um, I'm going to do exactly what you um, uh, basically told us not to do. (laughs) And I'm not going to give you a long disclaimer. of I can't possibly pick one, but I'll (laughs) say that in general, I really was excited by those essays that ask us to rethink parts of Hughes' life and career that seem to be subtle business. I'm thinking Mm. of... Juan, um, Juan Rodriguez Barrera's essay on the kind of red Langston Hughes, um, Vera's essay on Hughes in Cuba and South America, really trying to piece together. I mean, I, it was really helpful and satisfying to me to fill in that chapter of what happens to the connections he has in South America and in Cuba that, you know, it's a kind of, for specialists, is a kind of commonplace that those relationships he they they stop being important and you can be critical or more or less critical i'm not going to weigh in weigh in there but just to read vera put that story together and to to track that um shane grant's essay mm-hmm. on hughes in the context of colonialism and decolonization is really wonderfully complementary and fills in just some real, from my perspective, some real gaps in the scholarship that I think will give future readers um, exciting new directions and just questions to ask and really ask us to reconsider what happens in that period between the Harlem Renaissance and the 50s and 60s hues, between the kind of jazz age um, hues and the bebop era hues that is really crucial to understanding the turns that he ends up taking and how his politics maybe shift, but perhaps not as much as they seem to shift. Mm -hmm. Those would be my picks that stipulating that I really genuinely enjoyed and learned from each, each of these essays. And if 
um, someone isn't named, it's not because it's because we were given a time limit. I could easily just talk and <laughs> yeah. wax with Sonic about all of these essays. I just, I, I really am proud to have worked on this. Well, it sounds like there's something in here for students who are interested in Hughes and it would be accessible to them if they're coming to Hughes with only a, a, a bit of background, but are interested in in seeing how he was viewed around the world and what his experiences were traveling and so on. But it would also be interesting to a general reader like me who who is just interested in writers and knowing more about them. But there would also be things in here for uh, Hughes experts who people who have, you know, know a lot about Hughes, but who will find things that maybe they didn't know. Yep. That's absolutely right. And, uh, I think I want to amplify also what uh, Anthony said. So yeah, asking us, you know, to pick our favorite essay <laughs> is obviously difficult. And uh, I uh, really like Anthony's uh, way of responding to this. I think what I really like about the essays individually and in aggregate is how well in the end they fit together. Mm -hmm. Well, that seems like it would be uh, attributable to the efforts of the writers, but also to the two of you for kind of planning and, and organizing it and coming up with a, a roadmap to be filled in. Yes, to some extent, but we also made it a point to uh, put the writers uh, working on uh, similar topics or related topics in touch with each other. Right, right. Okay, well, we are glad to have the book, Langston Hughes in Context. Vera Kuczynski and Anthony Reed, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you for thank having you. Us. And finally today, let's hear from scholar Melissa Homestead, who was here to discuss her work on Willa Cather and Willa Cather's creative partnership with her lover, Edith Lewis. After our conversation, I asked Melissa a special bonus question. Okay, we're joined now by Melissa Homestead, whose book, The Only Wonderful Things, The Creative Partnership of Willa Cather and Edith Lewis, looks at a creative partnership between <laughs> Willa Cather and Edith Lewis. Uh, Melissa Homestead, thank you for coming back to join me on the History of Literature. Well, thank you for having me. So this is a special question. It comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either name one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Well, this is going to be perhaps a self-serving answer, but the next book I want to write, I hope I actually manage to write this mm. book which would be a dual biography of Sarah Orne Jewett and Annie Fields, mm. who play an important role in my book as leading the way and providing a model for Willa Cather and Edith Lewis of what a relationship between two women can be. So that's the book that I hope I'm going to write it. I don't know exactly how long it's going to take or whether I'm going to pull it off. But if I read that book before I die because I've written it, or even if somebody else writes it, I will be very happy. Yeah. Now, are they about 20 years or 40 years? How many generations are they ahead of Willa Cather? Uh, well, Andy Fields was quite a bit older than Sarah Orne Jewett, although she outlived Sarah Orne Jewett. So Jewett died in 09 and Fields died in 1915. But, uh, you know, Fields, I think, yeah, no, she's at least 10 years older than Jewett. I can't remember off the top of my head. So they are, you know, both of them slightly different generations uh, yeah. from each other and then from Cather and Lewis. But they are, yeah, I'd say they are old enough to, in generational terms, to be, you know, foremothers. Yeah. Would you say, uh, do you have a sense of, of the challenges with writing such a book? Do you know if there are uh, letters and, and journals and other materials that you'd be able to draw upon? Or it feels like they're yes. so 19th century and Willa Cather and Edith Lewis are so 20th century. Well, uh, in fact, they have the opposite problem, which is there is a huge archive of their relationship, which mm. I totally lacked in writing about Willa Cather and Edith Right. Lewis. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so it's going to be a different kind of challenge. They they wrote to each other. Those letters survive. Annie Fields kept diaries. It's, it's an entirely different problem from the one I confronted uh, in writing the book that I'm thinking this is a prequel to my own book, as it were. Um, but it's it's a very different set of challenges, and I haven't wrapped my head around it yet. 
Right. Okay. Well, good luck with that book. And I hope that is there for you uh, in your time of need. And maybe it'll be there for other people as well. Melissa Homestead, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. So there we have it. Sarah Orne Jewett, a solid choice. We will look forward to that biography. Some good Henry James cameos in that one, I would expect. So that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Melissa Homestead and, of course, to Vera Kuczynski and Anthony Reed for joining me. We'll be back soon. Oh, boy, we're headed for some more Dostoevsky, aren't we? One story to rule them all in Dostoevsky land. That's coming up next, and then we'll do some global traveling ourselves as we reach Australia for the first time in our history. We've been to New Zealand, we've been to Singapore, we've been to Japan. We have reach, we have interest, but finally we have a guest. That's how we'll wrap up July. That's the plan for now, anyway. We have a Persian prince coming up and the world of comics with an expert in comics. And Literary New Orleans. We'll check out the writers of New Orleans and we will travel to Rome. So, plenty of traveling ahead of us. I myself am leaving for a few weeks, but don't worry. One of the other Jack Wilsons will keep you in literary clover. Just like Charles Leslie McFarlane, Edward Strategemeyer, Edna C. Squire, Harriet Adams, Amy McFarlane, John Button, Andrew E. Svensson, and others tricked me into thinking that Franklin W. Dixon was the best and most prolific author who had ever lived. You're dead to me, Franklin W. Dixon, I cried, hurling my books into my toy box and slamming the lid shut. The lid, which was lined with shag carpeting, by the way, the same vomit-colored shag carpet that I had on my floor. The toy box was shaped like a coffin, which was perfect as the duplicitous Franklin W. Dixon was now dead to me. And the books sat in there and laughed. Jack Wilson, you just tried to kill a ghost. Franklin W. Dixon is not dead. He's living in the world of royalties, hoisting a glass and toasting his companion in crime, Carolyn Keene. The glasses, they lift are small. They are, in fact, shot glasses. For Franklin and Carolyn are, of course, drinking spirits in all senses of the phrase. I'm Jack Wilson. Long way to go for that one. <laughs> kind of a long way to go for that one. Here on the journey, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>